space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission? To observe Trek to from outside existence, to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of the universe. To seek out every second and contemplate every eon. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. I found a new The Nexus? Time has no meaning there. Hello and welcome to Temporal Trek, the podcast that will show Trek throughout existence in chronological order. I'm your host, Dan Hitch. Hello and welcome to episode 5. This is Star Trek Generations and we're going to be starting at timestamp 1 hour and 21 minutes. Now, the movies uh, are not on Netflix UK, so my timestamp from this is actually going to be based on my DVD collection for now uh, until I can find another way of streaming it and then I can be a little bit more precise. But as it is, this entire section is bookended by the minute. So we can let this one off. So general thoughts on Generations first before we get into the episode proper. Now Generations came out in the cinema. I was very aware of it uh, when I was younger. But First Contact was actually the first movie that I ever saw in cinemas, in theatres. So I missed out on it. I was a little bit too young. We didn't really go to the cinema too often. We couldn't quite afford it at the time, just as today. But I've got a very special feeling and place in my heart for Generations, partly because it reminds me of a specific Christmas. The first Christmas it was aired on our local TV network. Uh, I believe it was the BBC, uh, but my memory might be faulty on that one because I don't remember any advert breaks, uh, any ad breaks in between. And that generally means that was probably on the BBC somewhere, uh, either BBC One or BBC Two at the time. Now, the reason it brings back a fond memory, as most fond memories are for me, it involves food. And there was one Christmas I was sat there. Everyone was feeling a bit lazy. It was that sort of hazy time at Christmas. The lights are all on the tree. The main lights are all switched off. It's dark in the room. We've gorged ourselves on Christmas food a few hours earlier. No one really knows what else to do. So we just whack the TV on and watch whatever's on. The rest of the family are off doing their own thing. Um, I think dad was actually falling asleep on the on the sofa. Mum was probably sorting stuff out in the kitchen for, for something else. My sister was, I believe, somewhere <laughs> in the room. But I was there in front of our TV with this plastic tub of what was called broken biscuits. Uh, the idea being that the shop that we get it from totally no longer exists, Woolworths, Woolies, they used to sell lots of confectionery. They were quite well known for confectionery, uh, specifically types of uh, penny sweets and things like that. But they would also do these fantastic sort of box tins of biscuits. Unfortunately, they would also have quite a few broken biscuits. So what they would do is a company, they would actually put all the broken biscuits into one large tub and they put all of their chocolate, dark chocolate, so no milk chocolate, just pure dark chocolate, broken biscuits, in these tubs and they would sell them as a as a separate confection and i remember sat in front of the tv watching specifically the bit we're going to be talking about in this episode inside the nexus outside time on star trek with the tub open and just gorging myself on more chocolate how i had more room after a christmas meal i don't know but that taste of dark chocolate still gets into my mouth every time i see this movie from beginning to end it is just there uh, but specifically this scene just invokes that taste memory in my mouth of dark chocolate. I have absolutely no idea. I, it's a very Pavlovian response. It just seems to happen. But it's just one of those weird quirks that Star Trek, when it really gets in my head, 
invokes so many different sense responses that that is the bit that sells me more sometimes even when the, the story isn't great and i'm thinking specifically of star trek 5 um because there is this warm nostalgia and sense memory attached to it it will always invoke a happy response in me and i will enjoy that entertainment regardless of its foibles uh, and flaws so going back and now watching this scene again minus sans unfortunately the dark chocolate it's quite interesting to now see it with a critical eye and try and try and break it apart and see what's what's wrong with it and what's right with it so that's the ba basic background obviously we're going to come back to this movie in the firm rotation when we're actually going through chronologically starfleet history uh, but that's to come in our far future so here we are timestamp one hour 21 minutes now you've got picard he's gone into the nexus in search possibly to stop Soren, not really knowing what's inside there. He's already spoken to other characters in earlier in the movie. Again, we'll come into that when it comes around. But for right now, Picard has gone into the Nexus. Picard, our famously French captain, Jean-Luc Picard, from uh, La Bar France, from Chateau Picard. It's all about the French. So naturally, when he goes into the Nexus and gets the idea of joy, that French captain is going to have... A Victorian English Christmas. Bizarre. I have absolutely no why, or no idea why they chose that. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's baffling why they went for that. You've got a character who is so ingrained with a fantastic, rich history of having uh, Chateau Picard and this family who don't necessarily get on. Uh, the, the the father that he never really lived up to the expectations for the brother that he was always arguing with uh, perhaps the brother's wife who was friendly and was some, some sort of confidant when he was living there in Chateau Picard you've got René, his, his nephew you've got so many rich things you could tap into when he goes to the Nexus he's going to be with the loved ones that he doesn't see anymore as we saw in Where No One Has Gone Before in Maman is sitting there in the time. It would have been fantastic to have a little callback maybe to that, that actually maybe in the Nexus and when they were outside time that there's some sort of crossover and just not necessarily um, make it a plot point, but just a nice little niggle or a reference to fan bases watching this movie to have them come together in Chateau Picard and having a wonderful Christmas. That, that, that'd be fine. That'd be all right. Speaking of, by the way, I think this is the only reference to Christmas in Star Trek. It's been a while since I've rewatched every episode, but I would like to find out that there's some other Christmas in there. I know Thanksgiving gets mentioned at least once in 2OS and some other festivals as well, but I think this is the only mention and visual representation of what Christmas might look like in the future. Who knows? Consequently, this makes it, for me, the only Christmas movie in the Star Trek canon. As I say, Rene is uh, more than alive uh, in this, but looks completely different to the Rene that we're used to seeing in other episodes. The, the Nexus is a chance to see loved ones. So again, coming back to this idea that we had a character who had a very rich history, something to play into, something that even gets mentioned at the beginning of this film, that he lives on a vineyard in France, and yet we're getting this Victorian, a wife who is in this full Victorian garb, um, or perhaps even earlier than that, perhaps more Regency, so very Jane Eyre looking, um, and she's she's offering him a British tea. Uh, you know, it's 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 very bizarre. And then we turn around and we see all these children, and Picard is 
flummoxed by it. This is the beautiful part of it, is that we've got this character who is notorious for not wanting family, who who chose career over family, and here he is being given his wonderful alternative future with a family, with children, who are all speaking in very clipped British accents. So it's just very strange. <laughs> Let's just get past that. But there are some lovely little details in there as well. Uh, there's a Regency painting of former Picards um, with Patrick Stewart's face painted into sort of historical settings and things like that. Um, I would have loved to have been in the art department when they were painting all of those and getting those made up. I, I would love to see if there was like a behind the scenes where Patrick Stewart finally sees the paintings being revealed. Uh, it just looks tremendous. And wherever they are, if I had the money, you can damn well bet I would be buying it. Outside, it's snowing. Uh, so we, you know, we're keeping this idea of uh, this traditional Christmas, even though in Britain, I personally cannot remember a single time when it's actually snowed on Christmas. There's some really weird idiosyncrasies as well. Obviously, I've mentioned all this sort of Regency or perhaps Victorian look to the building, to the characters, all of the children are in. Uh, a Regency Victorian garb and yet they're unwrapping all of their Christmas presents and you've got dolls, plastic dolls, not China dolls, plastic dolls and plastic fighter planes with with camouflage on them and uh, very modern 20th century fighter planes. So even given that this is set in the 24th century as far as the character is concerned he's seeing children who are 400-500 years in the past playing with toys that are about 400 years in the past. It's just very strange. It's very odd. Uh, Aesthetic choices that are being made by the production team, by the director. Now, it could just be uh, symptomatic of they they want to put across this idea that it's confusing being the Nexus, that Picard sort of was shunted into it against his will into the nexus and so his mind is still adjusting to it so it's throwing him off kilter perhaps and i suppose that idea could be reinforced with the idea that he's looking out the window sees the snow sees a a christmas tree decorated outside the window and on it is a bauble with a a star exploding giving his subconscious perhaps a, a physical representation the idea that in the back of his mind is some sort of duty that's sort of compelling him to to actually get past this heavenly sight in front of him this wonderful sight of a family and get back to the reason why he was actually brought in it also brings up a nice element to these scenes that i think is is something that actually all of trek has had at some point particularly the uh, character of picard and it's the idea that humans might be incapable of happiness because there's always that bit in the back of their mind who they want to they want to have this wonderful world. They want to have everything they've ever wanted. But there's always that niggle, that doubt, that, that thing pushing in the back of their brain. Perhaps it's just Picard. <laughs> Throughout TNG, as far as I remember, there are many characters, including Q, who call him out for being stodgy and regimented and very bound by duty and honour that perhaps it's Picard who is incapable of being happy. It's also got a nice little throwback to our previous episode in episode four. You've got Quark, who was trying to convince the prophets that aliens in general, he was talking about the Ferengi, but wider towards humans and the idea that by not giving everybody what they want or making them lazy, by giving them benefits, 
and protections that things would fall by the wayside. There would be no honour, no duty. There would be no um, sense of ambition. Perhaps this is another play into this. If Picard got everything he ever wanted, that he would become lazy, that he would lose his ambition, that perhaps his duty and his honour would fall away. Uh, it's something that he has warned about before this whole scene. Speaking of, it's Whoopi. We've got Hoopai. Hoopai Goldberg. Uh, we've got Guinan. Um, she appears on this indoor carousel, which is very strange, as again. Uh, but again, we could play that into the idea that Picard is somehow fighting it subconsciously. He's fighting the, the joy that the Nexus wants to give him. He's saying that it's not real. She's saying it's as real as you want it to be. This is what you wanted. We're outside time. We're outside of space-time as we know it. We're inside the Nexus. And perhaps there's conscious element behind the Nexus. Some sort of living creature inside that wants... Uh, the people inside of this dimension to have everything they ever wanted. To, that, that it's the manifestation of what's inside their heads. And as soon as Picard is starting to doubt what the Nexus is giving him, as soon as he really starts to push that he wants to leave, he's got a duty, he has to do it, the Nexus tries to switch him back into happiness. It's very irritating. Child actors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've got this this child actor who's saying, Daddy, Daddy, come over here. Come, come help me, Papa. And so British, so clipped British. Um, it's you know, it's very, very weird. Even when I was a kid, I found that annoying. <laughs> but uh, Guinan is sitting there saying, Time has no meaning here. There's my bit of evidence as to why this scene is outside of time. Those are your children. And he sort of has this disbelief, which is quite odd. Given what we know has happened to Picard in the past, he's had these sorts of... Uh, realizations that he wants a family uh, in various episodes some very famous ones as well and he seems flabbergasted those are my children this is my family so he's almost slipping back into what the nexus is presenting and, and just give up on duty and honor and Guinan is saying you can go anywhere anytime um, you can go back and see them born you can go forward and see your grandchildren now it's never expressly said that the nexus has this conscious entity trying to compel Picard but it's quite hard to not watch this and think that there is something there trying to push him to, to stay there seems to be a will that's trying to pull him in as soon as he he vocalizes that he wants to go back to duty and honor I want to leave she's presenting it as a problem where would you go and, and so forth but Picard has straight away got it in his head I need to get back to the mountaintop on Viridian 3 he needs to go back and stop Sauron. Here's the problem. You've got access to a dimensional gateway, for lack of a better word. He's got access to time travel, effectively. That is what the Nexus could be. Why not go back further? Why not go back a little bit more when Sauron is first taken on board the Enterprise? Get him under arrest, throw him in the brig, movie's over. Jobs are good. Now, again, we're already going back into this idea that Picard is duty-bound and honour-bound. Perhaps he's already got a temporal directive in his head. If he goes back too far, he could change events. Things won't happen as they were supposed to do. Now, my argument against that is that Soren is forcing their hand. He is making unnatural events occur. He is exploding stars to get what he wants. That would not normally have happened. There is a callous aspect, perhaps a utilitarian aspect, to Picard not wanting to go back further uh, and save those lives. Um, He's actively tried to keep that going, despite what it would eventually mean. So perhaps we can let Picard off on this one, but it's still a very, very Star Trekian trope that the captain doesn't do the easy thing. He is still doing the hard thing. He still wants events 
to play out almost to the moment where he left and jumped out of the time stream. It's it's a valiant thing. It's a very noble thing. But personally, I would have gone back a lot earlier than that. But Picard realizes he needs some help. So Guinan says, I think I know someone who can. He just got here too. Now, I've established that if anyone listening to this ever wants to make a super cut of all the moments outside time to play as one single track, by all means, go right ahead. But it's going to get trippy because we've suddenly jumped out of this Victorian English paradise Christmas and we're going to jump straight over to some sort of Montana uh, cabin in the woods and there is Kirk chopping wood. Of course he's chopping wood. You can't think of another butch uh, thing than, uh, than I'm a lumberjack. Um, it, it always invokes that Monty Python song in my I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay in my head every time I see it. I don't know why. It's just there. I'm just going to have to accept it. It's just the same as the, the chocolate biscuits, the, the dark chocolate. It's just that thing that keeps on coming up in my mind. Uh, but the idea of Kirk singing I'm a Lumberjack would be fantastic. Kirk is very nonchalant. It's a beautiful day. He's accepting of what the Nexus is giving to him. He sees Picard. He's seen the uniform. He's seen the insignia that's on his chest. So he should know that this is Starfleet. Admittedly, there's big differences in costume, design, uniforms by this point, moving from the movie era Starfleet to the next generation Starfleet and into sort of the DS9 uniforms that they have in this generation. He doesn't seem to react to that. He doesn't seem to um, think that this Starfleet officer is perhaps real, perhaps is actually a person. He's just living in the Nexus. He's just accepted that that is his life. So unlike Picard, who was straight away with honour and duty and having to get back to the mission at hand, Kirk feels like he's earned it. Perhaps he's just left it over. Now, Guinan did say from his perspective he just got here. Now, just got here could be centuries, it could be seconds uh, in terms of the Nexus, but if you're inside the Nexus as well, what if he was being like Picard and wants to get back to the mission, wants to know what happened to the Enterprise B? Um, the Nexus showed him, and they just went back into it. That could be another scene that actually happened as well. Now, an interesting idea that I was having when I was looking at this is trying to relate it to other episodes that we've already done before. We were all the way back in Megas 2 with the Negans. We were talking about spheres of knowledge. Now, I think it's really interesting that the Nexus, when it's presenting your happy alternatives or perhaps your past, or a happy time in your life. It's clued into your specific happiness. It doesn't feel like there's some objective happiness that everyone can share in. Everybody is set into their own worlds. So looking back at our previous episodes, when we've been talking about spheres of knowledge, and people wanting to just surround themselves in what uh, reinforces their own viewpoints, their own cognitive dissonance of staying in their own opinion. It's interesting that the Nexus, as another out-of-time aspect is showing us characters living in their own bubble of happiness that they don't want to leave that now Picard broke out of that and that's one of the reasons why I love that character because his rational side is able to break through the the emotivism perhaps the uh, the the sense of wanting to stay in your own knowledge that he can break through that bubble and I think it's it's a good indication of the key difference between Picard's captain character and Kirk's captain character. Kirk will just instantly accept happiness. He feels like maybe he's, you know, he's suffered enough. You know, maybe it's time he got his happiness in the end anyway. But I like the idea that 
We've had spheres of knowledge. Now we're perhaps in spheres of emotion. Picard is about to jump in, try and perhaps persuade him straight away, straight into the mission. But Kirk just raises a finger, stops him there. Is something burning? And he sees his house. He goes straight in. He's already seeing all of these aspects. You've got um, these eggs that are cooking up. This is my house, he says. At least it used to be. And it seems that the, that's when the penny drops. That the Nexus is presenting him with just that little bit too much happiness. Now the you know the medicine's been poisoned. The, there's a tainted aspect now. His mentality might just be on the verge of switching over. He says he sold it years ago. Now that's very odd. You know he sold the cabin in the woods in a society that no longer values money and and so forth. It did make me think that uh, considering that last week's episode we have the Ferengi who are desperate to purchase everything in sight. Is there some weird Ferengi now just sitting in that cabin somewhere eating all the grubs from the forest? There's a <laughs> there's a little weird uh, side story for you. Uh, the Ferengi who like to chop wood. Picard uh, tells him his name and then sort of with this reluctant sigh tells him the Enterprise. So it's almost like he's having this debate in his head that he shouldn't really reveal where he's from or, or what he's doing to the other captain from the past, which I think reinforces that idea that he's trying to keep this temporal directive going, that that's why he's not going to go back further in time, that even when sp speaking to Kirk, a man he knows he needs to bring with him and convince, he's he perhaps should hold back the information but that sigh just sort of makes you realize that Picard realizes he can't hold that information from him he needs to tell him he's from the future but Kirk just completely ignores it <laughs> he doesn't even react to that he goes back to his his dream he just just hits right back into the fact that he's being presented with all these fantastic visions uh, he sees the clock that he gave to Bones and there's a one brief shot and I can't believe I miss this having watched this movie so many times, that on the wall behind Kirk, there's a Batleth. Now, Star Trek fans listening to this, you've probably seen this a thousand times. This was brand new information to me. This is fantastic. I love it by re-watching all of these things that I have somehow seen something I completely missed in the past. There's a Batleth on the wall. How the hell is that there? You've got a legendary anti-Klingon captain, and there's so many episodes and even movies where he's, he's hating on the Klingons. And yet there, there's a Batleth just on his wall. Fair enough. Uh, it's it's very weird to see that the character still holds everything in regard, despite despising Klingons for pretty much his entire life. Now, this could be set after Star Trek VI, when he's had a big revelation. He got over some of his uh, resentment towards the Klingons and so forth. So, you know, maybe it was a peace offering. Maybe. Uh, I would love to see the book that that, that has that in that um, that would be a nice little scene just have Kirk being handed the Batleth by a Klingon that he despises ooh maybe from the family who uh, whose uh, son killed his son and it's like a peace offering ooh that would be nice ooh I just gave myself a little story there we go right uh, I'm writing that one copyright to me uh, <laughs> there is uh, a really great scene just after that as soon as you go from this Batleth scene which completely inconsequential it just made me laugh because it's something I've never seen before that he's talking about all of these things around him and he suddenly then acknowledges Picard properly acknowledges him up to this point he's sort of been ignoring what he's been saying he says what are you talking about this is the future this is the past so Kirk is now starting to turn he's starting to realize oh, there's something else here it's not quite right we see Butler now Butler is the dog uh, Kirk goes over to him rushes over to him uh, seeing Butler brings back two fond nostalgic memories I've already mentioned that this movie, for me, is Christmas. This is a Christmas movie. We used to celebrate Christmas at an aunt and uncle's house quite often. And they had this massive dog called Pip. And uh, Pip was this beautiful golden retriever. He was just, he was great. And for me, big dogs 
and Christmas, they just smush together. It's just, you know, having like, the, you know, a lovely golden retriever that you kind of play with and everything that that brings back Christmas for me as well. So seeing a big dog like Butler, it just keeps reinforcing this Christmas aspect to me. The second uh, nostalgic element is that I was lucky enough when I was younger, my dad took me to uh, the Royal Albert Hall to go to what was called um, the event, the Star Trek event or exhibition. We never called it a convention. There was still that stigma, that sort of geeky, trekky stigma that we couldn't openly say we were going to conventions, but we had this gathering of the actors for serious discussion. Uh, but there were still people in costumes. It was a convention. It was a convention in every aspect other than in name. And it was fantastic going into London. You saw these Klingons, these Borg, uh, people in Starfleet uniforms. There was uh, there was a beautiful uh, woman in this beautiful uh, Guinan costume, full-on hat and everything. She looked stunning. Um, and you, you know, you're walking through the London Underground Tube with people in costume. Uh, at the time, all I had was sort of Star Trek T-shirts with sort of different movies and characters on them. Uh, I actually bought my first uniform at that event. And one of the key speakers, one of the main speakers, was William Shatner. And he was talking about making this scene for generations. So seeing it all happen uh, and seeing Butler, because Butler was a big aspect uh, for him. He, he wanted a dog to be there to, to reinforce this home. And there was lots of back and forth with the producers. They said that we'll get you a small dog. We can't really afford to pay for the big dog. Um, and he, he went to this tirade when he was on stage at the Royal Albert Hall for about 20 minutes about how small dogs aren't dogs. They are just annoying little yap yaps. And uh, he was like, he would do all these weird, funny um, asides about uh, how little dogs are nothing. They're, you know, they're, they're like having a, a handbag or, or something like that. Uh, he even did this little bit where he pulls out his top pocket on his shirt and sticks the dog inside. You know, uh, it was a really good moment. Everyone was laughing. It, it just... It was just a wonderful second. Uh, and he, as an actor, then said, well, I'll stump up the cash and we'll get a proper dog. And Butler came in. And it's just a fantastic little nugget of information that he was bringing in there. Now, whether any of that's true, and it's just a little anecdote that he made up just to talk about, maybe. But it's one of those things that always comes back in my mind every time I watch this movie, specifically that he's seen. He goes over to Butler, he uh, modelly coddles him, he, he's scratching his ears and things like that, but Butler's been dead for years. And again, we're getting Kirk switching into this idea. This isn't real, you can't stay here. And as soon as he has that realisation, the Nexus, never painted as a physical entity with some sort of consciousness behind it, switches in with a woman calling from upstairs, come on, Jim, I'm starving. Uh, again, it's almost like the Nexus is desperate to try and give him his happiness, even though he's almost going to switch himself out, just as Picard already has. Every time our characters break out of the Nexus, it's always trying to get them back in. So it, there's an insidious side to the Nexus, I think. Now, maybe I'm seeing things that aren't there, possibly true. Uh, this could just be my own uh, insecurities, but the idea that happiness is insidious, there's an aspect to the ne Nexus that I, I don't quite like, I'm not quite comfortable with. But it's interesting that this film could be argued is making a point that nostalgia is a dangerous thing. Now, I've just been talking for almost half an hour now about nostalgia being the main reason I love this movie. And now the, the movie's making me think, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it's, it's very strange, but it, it's never explicitly touched as far as this uh, scene is concerned. But it really does make you think every single time the character tries to pull out of happiness, it's trying to suck it back in. 
Um, it, it, you know, it's the uh, Michael uh, from The Godfather, you know, they're trying to suck me back in. It's a really bad Al Pacino impression. Um, but it, it's an aspect that if you ever watch this and you go back and you're watching along with this episode, uh, just watch it again and just get this sense that every now and then the Nexus is sort of kicking in. It's almost forcing them to be happy. Perk again is sort of reinforcing the idea this is the past, this isn't real, but he then realises the eggs are cooking. Uh, that's what was smelling earlier, that was burning. Katarian eggs, uh, he was going to soften the blow of telling her that he was going to go back to Starfleet. He was going to disappoint her. What a romantic devil. Picard is trying to then give him more information, try and convince him a little bit more, so he's really trying to push to get Kirk out as well, to pull him out of this nostalgia trap. And Kirk's response is just dill. It's almost like he's he's now realising that, wait a minute, I'm being given happiness here, maybe I should just go for it. So he was almost going to switch out, and now he's just going to accept it. And now we've got two really good positions. A captain who is forever going to go with the mission, and a captain who is now just giving in. Suddenly has a perfect recall of all the events of the Enterprise B. So we could ignore the idea that there was a scene where he got an update and now he's gone back into happiness. He's literally just got there. As far as he's concerned, he just plonked straight into the Nexus at the same time as Picard. Now, because he's gone into the Nexus at the same time, I'm interested to see if anyone who's listening to this would think that this needs to be watched again once we've done all of our watch through inside time. That at the end of time, when I do Season Infinity, that's a working title, should I watch this again? That if all time exists at the exact same time inside the Nexus, that it could be both before the Big Bang and after the end of the universe. So should this be watched again, I'll leave it to your hands. They're cooking up the eggs, they're burning, uh, the Katarian eggs are cooking, uh, that's, that's what was burning. And uh, Kirk has to go and make something else. He's just doing something else. And he hands a pan to Picard. And Picard instantly sort of uh, gives an ouch reaction. As if it hurts, it burns. Which is very strange, considering this is the 23rd century, as far as Kirk's fantasy is concerned. And no one's got heat-resistant handles. Very strange. Uh, perhaps Kirk is just a sadist? We don't know. Uh, he is in his happy place. Maybe there's something else we're not getting shown. Picard is very blunt at this point and just says, you died in that accident on the Enterprise B. And he reinforces this is a temporal nexus, this isn't real, this is just uh, your mind, this is your nostalgia. And Kirk, sort of, uh, along with him at the same time in the same beat, this is a temporal nexus, I heard you. So I heard you. He doesn't care. I think in his mind, he now knows it's not real. He's pulled himself out of it somewhat by realising what is and isn't real, but now he just doesn't care. He's fully accepted the position that I'm being given happiness, who am I to reject? Car gets impatient, he starts getting very shouty. Another nice callback to where no one has gone before. Uh, we've got shouty Picard back. He's doing it again. Whenever he doesn't get his way instantly, or whenever something is aggravating him, straight into shouting. That's, that's Picard's way. Uh, we always think of Picard as the nice, rational, calm uh, diplomat. But uh, when he doesn't get his way, out comes the shouting. Says that history considers him dead. Who am I to argue, says Kirk. Uh, he has fully accepted this. Picard even says what I've been saying this whole time. You are a Starfleet officer. You have a duty. There's Picard's position. Don't lecture me. Picard's, uh, you know, pushed his hand a little bit too far. Kirk is saying, you know, earned this one. Kirk then tries to convince Picard that maybe he should just let go. You're just like me when I was younger. Uh, so concerned with duty and honour. Now, uh, again, I'm looking forward to watching the episodes again, the TOS episodes, 
and going through Kirk's character, but he never really struck me as a duty and honour kind of captain. He was a very reckless captain. So very strange that, that Kirk is being written this way. Perhaps in his mind he was being duty-bound, that any actions he was taking was for the better of Starfleet, that uh, his first duty was to the protection of Starfleet and the Federation, so any reckless actions were about that. But if anything, if he was looking back at his own life, he would instantly jump at the chance at another mission. There is a nice, nice little scene for for Kirk and actually quite understated what did duty get an empty house it, it's a nice just silent moment just the character just realizing I gave it all my all I've done everything I could possibly do can I just enjoy this one can I just can I enjoy heaven for better or worse and, and it's a nice call back to the emissary when we were looking at Cisco talking about family and that Starfleet officers are sometimes seen as not wanting families now we've definitely got that in Picard and his version of happiness was to get one now, Kirk is being presented with a, you know, a chance to do things differently. So it was a nice little callback there. I think that Kirk realises he got nothing out of Starfleet. Eventually, he had no family. He had no happiness in the end. He just needs this. Not this time. I'm going to marry her. He marches up to that bedroom. He's going straight into that bedroom. He's going to ask her to marry him. And he's straight into some stables. Very quick cut straight over to something else. Uh, Clerk clearly has some other ideas. Now, I said earlier that maybe he's a sadist with all the cooking of the eggs and the burning handles. His idea of a bedroom is a stable. Just going to leave that there. All right. Picard walks in as well. Uh, he's almost looking around like, this is your idea of a bedroom? Uh, so he's almost like the audience, thinking, what's going on here? But of course, Shatner, William Shatner, he loves his horses. He breeds his horses and everything like that. He got his horses in this movie as well. Uh, that's another aspect of something he was talking about at that uh, Royal Albert Hall exhibition. He's standing there in the stables. There's horses all around him. Uh, Picard says, this is not your bedroom. And then Kirk says, no, it's better. Yeah. I'm going back to that weird idea. It's his uncle's barn in Idaho, and he can start all over again now. Wouldn't we all? If we had that chance, if we could do everything all over again, wouldn't we surrender just like Kirk? Picard is all about that mission. But if we didn't have that mission, if we were just given everything that the Nexus was willing to give us for free, no catch. There's At no point does it make out that... Uh, by being in the Nexus, you're being harmed in any way, that this is some sort of life form that's living off you or anything like that. It's a pure heaven, effectively. Kirk rides off, Picard saddles up and goes after him. There's a wonderful tracking shot where the camera's following the, the horses as they're going across the, the plains of Idaho, uh, effectively for this movie. The location is just stunning to look at. I would have given anything to have seen this in the, the cinema, in the movies, just because it's just beautiful just seeing the horses just off into the distance. Kirk's riding, he gets faster and faster, he's getting into it, he's loving all of this aspect of the Nexus, and then he does a leap. He leaps over this gorge, this little, um, this little crevice that is just in the ground. He leaps over it, looks back, he's puzzled, comes back, and then tries the leap again, but he can't. He can't seem to get over it. There's, again, another subtle piece of acting from Shatner. It's just this look. It's not words. It's not vocalised. It's not uh, screamed to the rafters. He's just standing there just sort of staring at the jump. What's wrong? There's something not there. Something's not adding up. And it, I think it comes back to this idea. Can humans ever be happy? Will that nagging doubt always be there? He tells Picard then later that he was scared. 
and that every time he did the jump it scared the living daylights out of him but here in the nexus even though he could do that jump a thousand times there wouldn't be any fear that fear loss and pain are reality and that's a pretty deep and dark and heavy aspect uh, you know something we've seen in other movies like the matrix uh, when uh, Agent Smith is talking about how the first Matrix was pure and beautiful and a nexus-like utopia, and yet it was humans who had trouble accepting that reality. Uh, so it's kind of depressing that human beings just don't seem to like being happy. It would also explain a lot. Antonio then appears on a hill in the distance. Now, Kirk has just had another revelation, hasn't he? He's just realised that without that fear, this isn't real. Perhaps he should just walk away from it. And then the nexus jumps in with Antonia on the hill, enticing him to come back to happiness. The Nexus just still seems to be very sneaky. And Kirk, defeated, says, nothing here matters. There's this idea of legacy. There's a non-linear element, as in the, the emissary. There's no uh, consequences. You're not playing the game. So a nice callback again to another episode. Uh, the idea that there's no game in the Nexus because the, all the outcomes are what you make it. You're not going to sort of go on a journey. You're just going through the motions. You're just living in that nostalgic emotional bubble that you've made for yourself. Captain Kirk is thinking through uh, all of his decisions and being in the Nexus. And there's this great moment where he sort of, he drives the horse around Picard and then sort of shuffles and sidelines up to him. Uh, the idea that Kirk is thinking and is physically embodying that by riding the horse around him. He then, for the I think the first time in all of this scene, really engages with Picard. He says, uh, you're the captain of the Enterprise, you know, uh, close to retirement. Picard like, throws that away and says, not planning on it. Now, I would say that I am recording this after the Star Trek Picard series teaser trailer has just been revealed. And in that trailer, they're talking about Admiral Picard. They're talking about... Uh, possibly that he has retired and moved away from service. So it's nice to now see this scene again, thinking about what they might eventually do with the series. But the series is nowhere near airing at the time of me recording this. Kirk gives him some advice and says, don't let them promote you. Stay there. Make a difference. This is one of my favourite speeches in all of this scene. Just the idea that that's Kirk's motivation. It's not necessarily due to duty and honour uh, and something objective out there that needs to be served. It's actually the personal honor the idea that you need to do better for yourself and then that will eventually make things better in, in the universe that it may be selfish but by acting in this selfish way of, of leaving a legacy leaving something greater than you behind that's how you best serve the rest of uh, humanity and the federation and the universe at large the card series uh, that's coming is still a mystery we know that uh, this admiral picard has left starfleet that he's fallen out of faith with the federation uh, so you could say that even though he didn't listen to kirk's advice about not getting a promotion that if he is out of faith with the federation that perhaps their legacy is in question now that would be a great thing if this series comes out and calls back to this scene about having legacy you know i spoke with a former captain of the enterprise once before and he told me all about this uh, that would be a, just a wonderful callback i really hope something like that happens picard then twists the knife and says right now you need to give it up because you can make a difference again you can come back with me back to this star and you can save us and save all these people uh, kirk just kind of gives that wry kirk grin the odds are against us the situation is grim sounds like fun now that's reckless kirk so thinking back to that previous time where he said like, I was so duty bound by honour no, reckless Kirk, that's what it is the, the man who takes the chances who rolls with the punches uh, has that fear to everything he does that's why he doesn't accept it not out of duty, but out of his own 
idea of leaving a legacy and having kind of a, and having a fear response having a, a thrill to life. Kirk also says uh, if Spock were here, uh, he'd say that was a irrational human being for taking this decision. I would have loved just a nice little scene. Just to, just Picard just saying, oh yeah, I met him once. Yeah, he said the exact same thing to me. He called you a cowboy diplomat. That would be just a nice little thing. And there we are. We're at the end of the scene. They ride off into the distance, into the sunset, or in this case, the opening of the Nexus so they can return to reality. And at timestamp, one hour, 38 minutes we end the scene. There we go. Star Trek Generations, all of inside the Nexus. So I'm going to come to the ratings system. Now we've been looking at canon, influence on canon. As I say, as I'm recording this, Star Trek Picard series has not come out. But we do know from the teaser that Picard did take a promotion and did become an admiral. So in terms of Kirk's advice, no impact whatsoever. He hasn't listened to it whatsoever. We've got the idea of happiness. Can characters always be happy or do they always have to suffer no for the sake of drama yeah okay every character needs to suffer otherwise nothing's happening uh we've already got a universe here where there's not much in the way of interpersonal conflict so having characters who suffer it's the way of producing drama uh, but i can't really say that anything that happens here has a lasting impact for our characters now there are events that if kirk doesn't go back then they wouldn't solve uh the, the mystery and they wouldn't stop Soren from uh, diverting the Nexus and saves lives and so on and so on and so on. That is true, uh, and but in that, but if that's our reason to give a canon impact, then everything is canon. You can't do A without B, without C, without D. I'm thinking more lasting impressions. Is there something altered in the way that the universe will unfold because of what happens here? And really, no. There's, it's a wonderful little introduction. We get this little flavour of the two uh, two captains having this debate. You know, you're in the middle of what is effectively an action movie. You're having a philosophical debate about happiness and living to duty and honour. It's a nice set piece, but really has no further impact as far as I can see. Now, when the Picard series comes out, that could change. Okay. Changes to writing. Now, I've already suggested a few things. I've already said that little lines from Picard sort of referring to the fact that he's met Spock again. That sort of thing probably would be cut out quite easily because of time. This scene is already 17 minutes of the movie just to two characters talking. So giving more stuff like that, that would have been, um, that would have been too much. Do I think that Captain Kirk's idea of happiness would be a log cabin. No, that I think is Shatner's idea of happiness. Living with his horses, being out in the open, I think that's William Shatner, not Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk, it, it would have been fantastic to have this scene play out on the old TOS bridge, having it rebuilt and perhaps he it's calling back to another episode that he feels is his happiest moment at the time when he had the best decision. Um, a nice little callback to a TS, TOS era you could have had Kirk looking as he does in generations inside the body of himself like living through uh, the TOS era now effect shots back then and the special effects for that kind of uh, scene would have been very weird uh, you would have had to have cut him in with all of the uh, the other actors from the time but we had at that point we had uh, Forrest Gump technology so we had the, the ability to sort of graft a face onto some other things we had the ability to graft faces onto the actors and, and change uh, uh, how a scene looked so it, it wouldn't have been entirely impossible 
it would have been incredibly expensive, I imagine. Uh, so that's probably why they didn't go for that. And it would be far easier just to take it on location somewhere. If I were writing this scene with no budget constraints whatsoever and having this as a big blockbuster, I think I would have done something like that to play into the fans, to give them something that they hadn't seen before. Now that's something we eventually see when we come to Deep Space Nine and Trials and Tribulations and we see the crew interacting with them at that time. So we've seen that, we've had that payoff, but to have it on a movie budget and just have it that little bit bigger would have been fantastic. So had I been writing the scene, that's probably where I would have gone with it. Picard, I've already told you that I would have had it shattered Picard, I would have played it more into what we already know about the character. What would have been a great callback would be to other episodes like The Inner Light. Again, not going to go into details because that's a future episode to come, but he was already given a family at that point. To have maybe those actors, to have those people come back and he lives that life again as his happy place. Now, it would have been much harder to write for him to come out of that because he probably would have wanted to stay there. Uh, you would have had more of his duty and honour trying to push through it but again for fan service i think it would have worked a lot better calling back to episodes of the past even though to a new audience that probably would have made much sense to us it would have and perhaps would feel just that little bit more important to us that this scene wouldn't be just what can be uh, played down to almost an ego project for uh, shatner uh, you know it, it's all the stuff you can see shatner is on the screen uh, this is shatner's life played by captain kirk not the other way around it's not Captain Kirk, played by Shatner. So if we had callbacks to what had actually happened to the characters, I think it would have been a bit more believable for fans, not necessarily for the new people who would have just accepted it as what was happening on the screen. So on that thought, do I recommend this to fans? Do I recommend it to non-fans? To fans, I mean, this is the meeting of the captains. This is the thing that was sold for the movie. But there's something lacking. It's just not quite there. For me personally, this is my happy place. This reminds me of the Christmas, sitting there with the tub of dark chocolate. You know, this would be in my personal nexus. This would be a moment that I would relive all the time. That happy feeling of Christmas with beautiful food, with, you know, lovely Pip the dog, that sort of thing. But that's my own personal nostalgia. When you're thinking about a crossover, when you're thinking about a meeting for the first time between the two main captains of the franchise, the Kirk and the Picard, you know, the ones that are debated over all the time on the internet about who would win. It's just a little bit too twee. It's just a little bit too nice. Um, so to Star Trek fans, despite what it represents, I don't think I can recommend this scene on its own. Within the sphere of generations, maybe we'll see in the future. To non-fans, does this mean something? Not really. If you're not a fan, you haven't lived and breathed TOS and all of TNG up to this point. The meeting of two captains. Oh, that, that, that's nice. That, that's kind of cute. That's all right. But it doesn't really mean anything to us. It's not going to be a flabbergasted moment. The, 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 oh, they're sitting together. They're talking. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, you're not going to have the reaction when I see a Batleth on a wall. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That's not going to happen to you either. So really, this scene on its own, can't recommend it. And, and that's it. For episode five, we are going to be leaving the Alpha Quadrant and Beta Quadrant for episode six. We're going to go to Star Trek Voyager's Death Wish. And we're going to start at timestamp 31 minutes and one second. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Temporal Trek. If you would like to contribute anything to the show, fan art, music, 
clips, ideas for segments, then please feel free to contact me on Twitter at Hitch underscore Daniel or on Instagram Daniel underscore Hitch underscore writer. This show is always going to be free. There's no Patreon at all. But if you would like to financially contribute to the show, then I am a published author on Amazon and I'll catch you in the next time stream.